Welcome to Act and Unwind, an ongoing conversation on a free and virtuous society. I'm your host, Eric Cohn. I want to thank you for listening and ask that if you're listening to us on our website, that you navigate right now to the show notes for this episode, where you will find a link to subscribe directly to Act and Unwind at Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or anywhere else where fine podcast products are available. And if you like this program, please leave us a five-star review at Apple Podcasts so as to help more people find this show. This week, I'm joined by Dylan Pommen, Acton's executive editor of the Journal of Markets and Morality and a research fellow, and Dan Huger, librarian and research associate here at Acton. Today, we'll talk about the Fed responding to inflation by raising interest rates and telegraphing another future hike. But first, we're going to hit the links with the Live Golf Tour, uh, which if you've not heard about this, uh, this is a competitor to the PGA Tour, the dominant golf tour uh, really in the world. And uh, it had a couple weeks ago its first major tournament. What's different about this tour from the uh, PGA, uh, the Live, in, adif- in addition to just sounding like it's uh, saying Live, L-I-V is how it is spelled. It uh, is the Roman numeral for 54, which is both the number of holes that will be played. So they've basically cleaved a day off of the four-day PGA Tour uh, tournament schedule. Now they only play three days. Uh, that's also the score that you would get on a 72 par 72 course if you birdied every hole. Um, but what's controversial about this is that they have attracted a number of uh, big name players to this tour, including uh, Bryson DeChambeau, Phil Mickelson, Dustin Johnson, guys who have uh, won uh, and have won big name, big name players, big name money winners on the PGA Tour. Uh, it's chaired by Greg Norman, the former two-time major champion who may be most famous for his collapse at the 1996 Masters. Actually, just last night, watched the ESPN 30 for 30 on uh, Greg Norman, which is very interesting. It's called Shark. I recommend it. Uh, So you may be wondering, why are we talking about golf on this podcast? Well, because the main source of controversy about the Live Golf Tour is that it is backed by an enormous amount of money from Saudi Arabia and as a result has drawn a lot of criticism um, for players going over accepting enormous amounts of money from the Saudis to play in this tour. Uh, more or less to give the Saudis a little bit of a uh, a shine on their reputation, and you know if you're not familiar with the uh, with the Saudis, in addition to of course a whole lot of the 9/11 hijackers uh, being from Saudi Arabia, is one of the groups that has been highly critical of people like Phil Mickelson for joining this tour. Uh, also. Um, in all likelihood, directly responsible for the murder of Washington Post uh, op-ed journalist uh, Jamal Khashoggi. So this is a phenomenon that has existed out there for a while. I was recently at the Oslo Freedom Festival uh, put on by the Human Rights Foundation and attended a session there on sports washing, uh, which is less than reputable regimes around the world using major sporting events or tournaments as a way to burnish their reputation. You wonder, how does a place like Qatar get the World Cup? Well, that's because there's an enormous amount of money there and a willingness to uh, roll over some of the things that if you were to stage a World Cup in the United States would be... uh, Things you'd have to do, such as, you know, not using slave labor to build the facilities that are going to be uh, housing, they're going to be hosting these events. So 
My question is, and I think it'd be more interesting to to set aside for a moment the moral questions about whether people like Phil Mickelson, Dustin Johnson, Bryson DeChambeau, these golfers who've gone over, reportedly also, I'll note, uh, they offered, it's believed to be about nine figures to Tiger Woods to get him to sign on to the store. So there's a lot of money at play here. So set aside the players for a moment. What are the ethics if you're just a golf fan who wants to watch additional golf tournaments of enjoying something like the Live Golf Tour? Or if you're a soccer fan wanting to watch the World Cup, which is, of course, the biggest tournament in international soccer, you don't have any control over what country gets it. You don't have any control over where it is played and what kind of countries are chosen and the types of governments and leaders that those countries have. What, if any, moral or ethical responsibility do you have in choosing your sporting products? That's a great question. So uh, on the one hand, of course, this is for the most part out of people's hands, but there's an interesting kind of um, parallel to public choice questions, I think, about, um, you know, why vote? It's just one vote. Does it really matter? Well, you know, it actually does add up, right? Somebody wins, somebody loses. Um, Maybe the market is big enough that you can have the PGA and the the live uh, tour as well. Um, but maybe not, you know, maybe this, this overtakes the PGA if enough viewers, uh, or consumers are just watching this instead of something else. Um, I don't know. This is the sort of, uh, moral con quandary. And I think voting is similar to some degree that I think there's a lot of reasons for doing something. Um, so, you know, you can vote your ideals or you can vote practically based on which party you think has a better chance and that you're okay with, you know, you can do this kind of strategic voting sort of thing. And I think there's a place for both. Um, So I think what I would point to rather is what does your conscience say? Um, Because whether or not you are perfectly correct in your moral judgment, it is a very bad thing to go against your conscience. Even if you're like, you know, maybe if I understood this differently, I wouldn't feel bad about it. Um, so I would think in those terms, okay, you're you're a, a golf fanatic, um, which is not being a fan of golf is very hard for me to imagine. But you're a golf fanatic. You really want to watch uh, your favorite golfers play. Uh, but you got problems with Saudi Arabia, very understandably, as, as uh, Eric just mentioned, some good reasons. Um, and so you don't want to do this. You don't want to watch it. You don't want to support it, even with your one viewing point uh, that goes towards their ratings or whatever the case may be. Uh, The first thing I I thought of is there's probably a golf tournament in town, wherever you live. It's summertime. Um, There are young uh, golfers. There's the next Phil Mickelson playing right now in your town. Go support them. Show up and cheer for some young athletes out there who are just getting their start. Look around, like actually pay attention to what's happening in your town, in your city, uh, at the golf courses around you and support them and show up and, and become a become an avid fan of some people who live in your community. Maybe they even go to your church or, you know, work, you know, maybe they're like a, a co-worker's son or daughter, right? You never know. Uh, but there's all kinds of alternatives available. If what you really love is golf, you know, give it a try. Um, uh, you mentioned soccer earlier. So, uh, you know, a comparable, somewhat comparable example, uh, 
you know, let's say that you're upset at FIFA for being hopelessly corrupt, uh, which is understandable. Uh, I, I was at I, my daughter's fourth birthday party at a big trampoline place here in town, and thankfully they had. I, I did a lot of jumping on the trampolines, uh, which is ill-advised given that I'm 38 now. But uh, uh, but there was also TVs with soccer, and it was Detroit versus El Paso. At least I think that's what ELP stood for. But it was kind of great to watch a football game in which I wasn't certain Detroit was going to lose. Right? <laughs> um, wasn't really the football I'm used to and all of that, but uh, it was fun. And my my little I had a, my two year old with me. He just loves anything with a ball, and um, you know it was a good time. We'd take a little break when I needed a rest and I'd watch some soccer. And so, I don't know. I, I, I think people kind of really need to broaden their vision if it's the sport you really love rather than just being a fan of a celebrity or something like that. Um, then find where the sport is pure um, and go there, even if it's not, you know, the best by, you know, a statistical standard. I'll add that uh, one of the reasons I kind of look at this controversy a little cynically, you know, I, again, we could detail. I just gave you the top of the iceberg of the problems with Saudi Arabia, right? So, I mean, it is an oppressive uh, religious regime. It is the exporter of um, is it Wahhabi, uh, Wahhabism, uh, Wahhabism uh, around the globe. Uh, all of those things are true. Um, but in this uh, article from The Athletic that's an explainer on the Live Golf Tour that we'll put in the show notes um, – you get this kind of stuff, which makes me just roll my eyes. So the Live Golf International Series is an upstart league led by Australian former golf star Greg Norman, meant to challenge the longstanding reign of the PGA Tour. The endeavor is controversial for multiple reasons, including that it's backed by Saudi financing and plans to make stops at two Donald Trump-owned courses, uh, which there's something unintentionally hilarious in a sad way about putting those two things in the same sentence as if they are on the same par. Like one need not be um, you know, a huge fan of Donald Trump to say that, yeah, uh, he may have said mean things about the media, didn't have a journalist murdered. Um, so I think we can draw a clear line there. To me, it makes me think of the quote unquote controversy over whether or not people of certain political inclinations, it's all right for them to eat at Chick-fil-A. Uh, there was this phenomenon for a while. I remember interviewing Kevin Williamson from National Review a few years ago where he uh, he confessed that he was at one time a proponent of this idea that there was an app that you could download for your phone. You could scan barcodes of products and you could find out the political contributions of the companies that made those products. So you could shop in accordance with your political values. And he thought um, that this would be a way to alleviate a lot of this Chick-fil-A like craziness. And I, I think in retrospect, we could say that this kind of a mentality um, – created a lot more problems than it did serve as any kind of a solution to anything. Uh, because as we should be unsurprised, a lot of these companies play both sides. Uh, so it's not like you can find, you know, a politically clean vendor of, you know, processed carrots or anything like that. It's difficult to do that. But I've always thought that you know, one of the things about commerce and the way that it is uh, operated in a place like the United States is I don't have to care about the political beliefs of the people who run Chick-fil-A or the people who run Starbucks. Um, I can, in a way, absolve myself of that. Now, that's a different question than giving uh, financial support in one way, shape or form to 
a country like Saudi Arabia, which, again, has done some truly repugnant things in a way that uh, neither Chick-fil-A nor Starbucks has ever done anything like that. So it is different, but I think there is a through line in the way that I've always thought about you know, it's fine to shop at companies that don't share my entire belief system. Um, but there is a difference in kind and degree, I guess. So there's there's a couple of ways we can complicate this further. Because I would rather have Saudi Arabia spending money on golf than on murdering journalists. And this product very much sounds like a loss leader for them. This is something that they're investing in for reputational reasons. So this course or this up, uh, these golf courses, this golf tournament um, can be a cause also to bring those things to light. And to talk about those. And I was thinking earlier, you don't get clean hands in American sports either, as the NBA a couple of years back. And Daryl Morey, then general manager of the Houston Rockets, making comments supportive of uh, human rights protests in Hong Kong, was basically let go of, from his job. There was a flurry of players, coaches, um, the players and the coaches were actually the most egregious in their apologies for the for the Chinese regime. The NBA was mild by comparison um, to some of these folks. And um, so you don't get a very easily morally uh, uncomplicated out by just buying American, as it were, in terms of your sports. There's also a fundamental logic of markets that I think a lot of people fail to appreciate is part of what makes every exchange a win-win is the fact that you think you walk away with a better deal for your money, for your attention, that you are deriving more value from it than they are from you. And I think that's important, particularly when you're talking about, okay, particularly when you're talking about, you know, are these, um, are these things that better equip me to work in the world and to transform the world in positive ways, to enrich the f people in my life, um, to give them a better life. Now, sports is to recomplicate that, sports is very difficult to assess on those because oftentimes they're an attention suck and they draw us away from other people. In fact, sometimes the watching of sports draws us away from the playing of sports, um, which is also one of the pleasures of life that more folks should be involved in. So with all of those complications, I think Dylan's guide to conscience is key because I think our conscience troubles us when the benefits we receive are so marginal that it causes us to second guess our own consumption. And I think following that conscience is the surest guide. Um, and I think, you know, this is also something that, you know, can give you an opportunity to talk about these things. If a friend calls and says, hey, I'm interested in watching this tournament, you can say, you know, I'm, I'm really at ease, at ill at ease with this, and this is why. And then this, this, this becomes 
this functions not as merely a whitewashing effort for the Saudi regime, but becomes a catalyst for a more robust public conversation about the regime itself that's informed by the things that they are seeking to distract us with. One of the reasons I think I I welcome this controversy is unlike a lot of the other sports controversies that we have had where uh, issues that are generally political in nature have intruded into the sports world, again, as we've discussed, some of the things that Saudi Arabia has done are truly awful and merit that kind of a conversation the same way that the Olympics being hosted in Beijing uh, with what China is doing to uh, – well, one, being a communist state and secondly, what they're doing to their uh, Muslim minority Uyghur population is the kind of thing that is worth talking about in conjunction with uh, events like the Olympics or the World Cup being held in Qatar, which is also an abuser of human rights, are entirely worth having conversations about. As compared and, – and the NBA is another good example of that uh, because of the – how intertwined the business of the NBA was with China. I, I think those are all things that are really, truly worth talking about. Compare that, however, to Major League Baseball's decision last year to move the All-Star game out of Atlanta, Georgia – And to Colorado, spurred largely by legislation passed in that state about how it is going to govern voting, which was, I'm sorry, a purely hysterical reaction because it made Georgia's voting policies roughly comparable to New York's. We're not – you have this – puffed up rhetoric that surrounds almost all of these changes, that um, it is a uh, a bill that was geared towards voter suppression. And yet we just had primaries in Georgia and the turnout was larger than it had been. And you get these pretzel twisting logic uh, answers from people like Stacey Abrams saying that, um, you know, s- voter suppression is not about turnout. Like what what are we talking about here? That makes no sense at all. And as a result, I think it is better that we're having conversations about things that actually matter. I I don't mind the intrusion of outside world events into the sports world when it is something that is seriously worth talking about and is we're given that venue through sporting events. But we can have conversations about what are best practices and good policies for voting that have absolutely nothing to do with where the All-Star game is being hosted. We can have conversations about what kinds of gun reform is recommendable or not recommendable without Steve Kerr, the coach of the Golden State Warriors, uh, getting himself in an absolute moral fit before a basketball game. These things have nothing to do with each other. And it is not to say that Steve Kerr cannot have opinions on gun reform or on school shootings or on terrible things that happen in this country. It is to say that it is a that is an example to me of people unable to stay in their lane. And we have a huge problem with that in this country right now where it is an offense for you not to have an opinion on everything that is going on in the world. We should make it more acceptable for people to not care, even about some big and important things, because not everybody can care equally about everything. It's the problem with people who are constantly outraged, right? When you're constantly outraged, you're not outraged anymore. It is just your set level. Like the Hulk. 
Exactly. Exactly. So I, I think this is – you can welcome this in the sense that it is something that is worth talking about and this is the venue that is giving us the opportunity to talk about it and it's the only real venue that we have to talk about it in in some sense. It isn't just the abstract. Let's have a conversation about the, the merits and dismerits of the nation of Saudi Arabia. Yeah, I think Major League Baseball's uh, biggest error there, no pun in- intended, was assuming people watch All-Star games in the first place. <laughs> uh, also, don't they still have a team in Atlanta? Yes. Doesn't uh, it have a rather problematic name? Uh, but we're going to move well, the All-Star game away. And we could and... add to that, too, that they moved the All-Star game away and um, their karmic payback for that was the Atlanta Braves winning the World Series last year. So they have something far more significant and far more profitable for the sport having, um, I I believe Atlanta was the home team, um, having four of the seven games of the World Series being played in Atlanta. Uh, That was the karmic payback for that. So I, you know, it... It was a very dumb thing, but I don't think that you know conversations about uh, Saudi Arabia's backing of the Live Golf Tour, um, you know, the different nations that have been awarded the uh, the World Cup, which in a way, you know, maybe we can go into into this part of it too. Um, I think one of the problems with things like the World Cup, with things like the Olympics, is if you're a responsible country. You'd be crazy to say yes to these things. The financial requirements for what you have to do in order to host them are always lend themselves to just fiscal irresponsibility. You have to build all of these facilities. You have to house all of these people. So it shouldn't be surprising to us that the nations that are willing to say, yes, we will do it, are the ones more willing to make moral compromises on the way that they will go about doing things like building these facilities, um, using, in effect, slave labor like they have been using in Qatar, um, building very cheap and, again, exploiting people to do it in uh, Sochi, Russia for the Winter Olympics several years ago. Um, The Perhaps the way to solve something like that is there should be a single location where these things happen, um, which, which again also doesn't raise Mount the problem. Olympus, perhaps. Yes, that yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, doesn't raise the problem, right? Of they're going to play soccer in Qatar. I don't know if anybody's aware, but it's really hot there, and it doesn't seem like the best place to spend ninety minutes running up and down a field. Uh, but it, we're almost trapped into these kinds of things with these major global events because as a nation, you'd have to be crazy. You can go look up the ruins of previous Olympic spots. Atlanta, ironically, one of the places that handled it the best. Uh, if you go to downtown Atlanta, the park is still there. It's very nice. It is utilized. A lot of the facilities are still being utilized today. Uh, but that is not true for the vast number of uh, places that have hosted the Olympics, winter or summer. And as a result, you know, you need to find somebody willing to take on that risk. Um, and it shouldn't surprise us that the more morally questionable regimes around the world are the ones who are willing to say yes to that. There's all of that. And then there's the mechanism by which things are decided. And then we talk about how the International Olympic Committee operates, how FIFA operates. Um, Even when these are in places where we don't have these sorts of issues, the way that many of these nations secure these bids is underhanded, um, to put it mildly. Um, And you get a sort of low-grade 
corruption that exists in all sports. Boxing was famously linked to organized crime for a very long time. Uh, Vince McMahon of the World Wrestling Wrestling Federation, you know, just had to step down this year because of any all sorts of scandals. Are you telling me that professional wrestling is staged? Yes. Scandal. It's. I think this is a good uh, a good point to invoke uh, great words of wisdom. It's not a lie if you believe it. Yeah. Right. But yeah, it is, you know, it is performance, right? You, you can point to, you, know, you go back to baseball again, you can point to the Black Sox scandal. You can, you know, there are certainly examples of all of that, but it's, you know, it is a, there is a degree of difference. There is a type of difference between those kinds of scandals, which are bad and the, and are awful for the sport. And yes, the blatant corruption that exists in FIFA in the way that, you know, these countries are decided upon to be the host for something like the World Cup. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You also have, you know, I, I come to mind, you know, the oftentimes what we think of is, is maybe the cleanest, the most American is, of course, baseball. And you pointed out the all-star game controversy recently. There's also the status of baseball in the United States that would make something like a live tour to the PGA, in the United States at least, illegal. You know, Major League Baseball has a monopoly position. We have had the ill-fated XFL to bring back Vince McMahon as a comp- as competition. We had the NBA and the ABA for many years before their merger, uh, comparably competitive uh, basketball leagues. Um, we have a tradition of rival leagues in hockey, particularly strong tradition in Canada. Mm-hmm. Major we League also now baseball. currently have uh, the USFL, which has come back, which is, um, you know, the Super Bowl, of course, happened back in February. You can watch football games, mm-hmm. uh, professional football games this coming weekend that are USFL games. Mm-hmm. And one one of the reasons that Major League Baseball has been afforded this privilege is because it also grants Congress oversight. This is why we had the steroid hearings. This is why we had all this sort of thing. So you have sometimes even corruption taken on in the name of anti-corruption, in the name of we're going to grant privileges in order to sort of clean up the game. So it's very important when we're talking about these issues and particularly talking about concrete ways to reform this. Again, consumer behavior is somewhat different because I think there's, there's a real conscious element in there. But tracing those consequences of reform efforts, I think are very important because, you know, these things have been tried before and they often lead to a corruption of their own. To be fair, to, uh, no World Series since 1919 has been rigged, though, as far as that I know. We right? know <laughs> that we know of. That we know of. So maybe the reformers have one point in their court on their, on well, their side. One of, one of the more famous reform efforts is, of course, Teddy Roosevelt, who was credited with saving American football by uh, helping to implement rules that made it uh, less dangerous at the time, uh, which leads us to the position that we're in currently, which is, again, you know, these kind of moral questions that we have to ask ourselves. When you're watching a football game every Sunday, uh, you are in slow motion watching the 
mental debilitation of a whole lot of professional athletes who are taking blows to the head that in time will lead to problems like CTE that basically give them the equivalent of early onset dementia. Um, and we hear you know, the stories of players who have taken their own lives like Junior Seau because of how bad these problems got. What is, again, just as the average consumer, what is – at if any, your moral culpability in supporting something that is, I think we can undeniably say at this point, um, harming its players and doing so in a way that will probably lead to shortened lives, um, that will not allow them to live a full and healthy life at a minimum. Um, there's a really good book a number of years ago by one of my favorite writers, Chuck Klosterman, called But What If We're Wrong? And the whole premise of the book is that, you know, we uh, we tend to look back at the things that people believed, say, hundreds of years ago. Like they believed the earth was flat. How could they possibly believe? They believed that the, uh, earth, uh, the sun rotated around the earth. How could they possibly believe that? Um, but we never stop to think that 400 years from now, people will look back at some of the things that we believe in the exact same way. So it tries to get us to examine some of the things that we just regard as being absolutely true at the moment. One of the points that he made in the book is that uh, what may save football is the violence, um, that it may become a more niche sport. But for people who have a desire to watch a violent contact sport like that, football being you – know, unless you're going to move it to professional flag football, you're just not – it's going to be very difficult to get that kind of stuff out of the game. So I think football has a few things uh... – I, I I certainly agree that any way we can find uh, to make it safer, um, we should try to do because, <laughs> uh, you know, all those things you mentioned are true. On the other hand, um, as far as violent sports go, um, it's probably one of the better ones, right? Um, historically, certainly, you know, no one is actually like battling to the death. Uh, so that's good. Um, but if we broaden it to think of professions, uh, deep sea fishing is one of the most dangerous professions in the world. Uh, but the guys who do it know the risk, and they do it anyway. Um, now, maybe there was a time when people did not quite know the risk of a career playing professional football. I think that time has passed. I think the people who get into it now take on that risk. Now, I'm not saying that we shouldn't try to make it safer, but... Uh, that side has to be considered as well. These yeah. people have agency. They choose this. Um, and as far as football's popularity goes, as far as I know, the Super Bowl is still the most watched TV event every single year. So pretty much, um, they're not hurting in that that department. So uh, I'm I'm absolutely in favor of trying to make it safer. Um, but this is a case where I think that there is some personal responsibility involved. Um, and people, you know, I don't. I maybe I should, but I don't think twice about eating fish. Well, right. <laughs> here's an example, too, of, you know, where we can make one of the economic insight points that we would make at, here at Acton about unintended consequences. They have been trying for years now to make football safer. And some of the ways that they have been doing that are advances in technology around the equipment that is being used, around the helmets, particularly that players are using in football. And one of the unintended consequences is that it has actually probably made the game more dangerous, not safer. Because as you are giving players these uh, helmets and telling them that these are as safe as they've ever been, players are more willing to throw their body around in ways 
that they otherwise wouldn't if they were wearing, say, leather helmets. Um, you know, if you look at the comparative of you know Australian rules football or rugby and the incidence of head injury there to the National Football League, it's much more pronounced in the NFL. They don't wear helmets or meaningful helmets um, in either of those two sports. How could that possibly be? Again, the unintended consequences of giving people these high-end products that say they're as safe and most protective as they'll ever be, that leads people to act differently. And as a result, we've seen even though you introduce these you know, safer and safer helmets – you still have the same rising incidence of head injuries and concussions and the problems that flow from that. There are ways to – I mean we seek these technological solutions and part of, part of the problem, as Eric has pointed out, is that part of the problem is, is we are dealing with players that are faster and stronger than ever because all of the incentives of the game are to get bigger – to get faster. And that's partially what we watch for. We watch because these are professional athletes. These are people who do things that the normal person could not do. This is why it's worth watching on television rather than doing it yourself, because in many cases, you cannot do these things yourself. Um, so that is always a challenge. Now, I think that both the NBA and the NHL have successfully in both basketball and hockey done rule changes and more importantly have officiated games much more closely, allowed less contact um, that was maybe always outside the rules but not so strictly enforced. So there are, there are other ways um, you can do this as opposed to that don't feed into – either um, that feed into the actual sort of social regulation of the game and how players treat each other on the field or the court or the rink um, that doesn't have to do with creating either, you know, a potential uh, hazard in making players more indestructible um, that, you know, feeds into the sort of like physical uh, transformation of many players in many leagues that are also going along that same trajectory. And this involves, you know, a culture of closer officiating, more respect between players, um, and just general cultural changes in how violence is considered in the sports themselves. Give you a clear example here of evolving away from some of these more dangerous things. Uh, you mentioned NHL hockey. Fighting is allowed in NHL hockey. You can drop the gloves and punch the other guy in the face. And the punishment for it is that you go to the penalty box for five minutes. It, other than that, it is legal. It is punished. You, you get a penalty for it. But it is allowed within the sport. Fighting is less common in hockey now than it has ever been, again, largely because of the evolution of the sport itself, that it has gotten faster, it has gotten more skilled, and it is less beneficial to have a player on your team whose only real talent is punching other people in the face because you got that guy on a line, you're likely – that line, if it's when it's ever out on the ice, is going to get caved in by one of the more talented other lines from the other team. It, it is evolving 
out of the game, largely because of the evolving preferences of the people who watch the sport, the people who play the sport, and especially as you were talking about Dylan earlier with you know go support you know local high school or college golfers, um, because of parents' interest in protecting their children. Even though if you were to become a you know an NFL player or an NHL player, you would understand the risk, and you would also be compensated handsomely for understanding that risk. Also because, you know, your average career as a lineman in the NFL is a couple of years. So, yeah, it's not surprising that you're getting paid that much more when this is your first occupation. Um, It probably won't be your only one, but it is first and foremost of them. Uh, So it it is we have been evolving away from some of the more dangerous aspects of the sport. We we still see it pretty pronounced in the uh, NFL. But again, in the in the NHL, where, again, fighting is still permitted, it's becoming less and less common because the tastes of the consumers have changed. And as a result, you don't see it as much anymore. I wonder as well. uh, Maybe some of our listeners can, uh, you know, tweet at me and let me know. But uh, I wonder if there's like a developed discipline in hockey as well, because the whole the whole point is they used to have an enforcer on the team uh, and their job. They could play hockey, but their job was to pick fights with the good players on the other team so that they both get that five minute penalty. And sure, you lose your enforcer, but now they lost Wayne Gretzky or whatever for five minutes. Um, is there I would be really curious. Is there like an increased, you know, um, discipline among star players or all players uh, to to ward off the taunts uh, that led to those fights uh, or to to take the you know the check into the boards with a, with strides that <laughs> did not happen in the past um, you know my knowledge of hockey comes from like watching Happy Gilmore so I, I probably don't have like the best impression of that either um, but I'm sure there's plenty of trash talk and all of that but maybe it's something that it's it's in good fun in a way that it wasn't, say, 20 years ago. I mean, there, there probably certainly is. It, the things that would spur fights still exist in the game. It's just that it is, I think, handled differently at this point. Again, there's still fighting in the league. It still happens. Um, but I think uh, more people are realizing that the theory behind having an enforcer on the team is that so that, you know, uh, the other team doesn't rough up your best players. It still happens, even to teams that have enforcers on there. And you also have guys who are willing to step up and defend other players who, A, are willing to do that and capable of doing it and have talents other than punching people in the face. You don't just need one guy for that purpose alone. But I just I find it interesting that it had been a, a source of controversy about pro hockey for uh a good while that it permitted fighting to the point that even EA Sports, the video game maker, took fighting out of the video game for a, yeah, yeah, for (laughs) one year. And of course it returns because people wanted it in the video game. But again, you see it less frequently now because of the evolution in the nature of the game, which is the sport, um, which is a business responding to the market incentives that actually exist there. So I mean, we've gotten far afield from the moral questions of whether or not you should watch golf backed by the Saudis. But I think I hope we've given people some uh, something to think about in terms of how they make certain consumer decisions. Another consumer decision that a lot of people probably will not be making is purchasing a house anytime soon. 
Uh, the Fed has raised interest rates by 75 basis points, three, three quarters of a percentage point, uh, and have telegraphed that they are likely to do so again in the future. Uh, this is in response, of course, to growing inflation concerns. We talked a lot about this on this program last week with David Bonson. Um, as he pointed out, helpfully, we are, we are not in stagflation territory yet. Um, but certainly, there is a pronounced concern about the impact of inflation around the country. And to me, I, I think that's one of the more interesting takeaways. Uh, there, there are two that I think are, are, are meaningful here. One, um, there is... There is a real fiscal crisis in this country that is looming. Uh, if we get to the point where this country can no longer comfortably service its own debt, uh, we're not there yet. Um, we may not get there. Hopefully, actions are taken to avoid us getting to that point. But it is a concern that we should keep in mind. The other is, again, we find ourselves in a time of financial uh, uh, distress talking about the housing market, which has been – Incredibly hot. It has been a seller's market. And now the interest rates at which you will be able to take out a loan to buy a house are also going up, which is certainly going to have effects on that market. Uh, so I'll call back to a similar previous question that we have asked in the program. How confident are you in the actions of the Federal Reserve that it is going to deal effectively with the inflation problem that we are seeing in this country? I'm not very encouraged. Um, and part of this, I mean, we talked about this with David last week, um, that there is certainly, I mean, I think I think Milton Friedman is, is correct that fundamentally, you know, inflation is always and everywhere a monetary phenomena. But two of the most acute places where we are seeing it is in the energy sector, which we have a series of constraints that... <clears throat> between government intervention, supply chain disruptions due to the coronavirus, um, and just a long-term government policy around the world of transitioning away from fossil fuels that makes energy producers, particularly energy producers of fossil fuels, very reluctant to make the sort of investments. You had, you had a case uh, recently where Michigan's former governor, our now energy secretary, Jennifer Granholm, was – Ma making the case to uh, to energy companies to invest in more refineries, and then she was asked a follow up question by the reporter: "Well, is the plan to still like phase out fossil fuels in the next five to ten years?" And she said, "Yes." And that you know, a lot goes into an oil refinery, from the planning stages to the execution. Um, and through the outlay of capital investment, and if you're getting a message that we would we do not want your product in this country in the next 10 years, you're not going to make those capital investments. Another key driver of the present inflation is housing costs. And this is a classic supply problem. And again, is caused by a sort of overregulation. Um, all sorts of frustrations, particularly in areas where there is acute housing demand. These are those like large in demand urban centers. Um, they're particularly constricted. Um, and what the drying up of credit is going to do with that market is further uh, disincentivize the construction of new homes. 
Because if the financing isn't there, again, on the margin, we've seen in West Michigan, we've seen a lot of building happening because of an environment in which there is supply constraints, rising housing prices, and cheap credit. And that combination has incentivized the building of new homes. If you take away that cheap credit, that logic changes. So I think I think overall the Federal Reserve um, can and should maintain a tighter monetary policy. But part of what having a general long-term you know, monetary policy based on price stability involves is not jerking the interest rate around. And when we jerk the interest rate around, even when it's to the end to sort of constrain the overall problems, we are going to encounter major market disruptions because people have had plans. They have, they're acting on this now. And when you change something like this, you are going to disincentivize those investments that are made that we may need in the energy sector, that we definitely need in the housing sector. So I am, I am not optimistic. It may be something that long-term is necessary to be done, but I don't think it gets us out of the inflation woods near term. Yeah, I think that the concern, or at least the problem that the Fed faces, is that you know, it's, it's about the only thing that's in its playbook. Right. It's about the only thing that it can do. And if you're the Federal Reserve uh, chairman or the board of governors and you are looking at the only other body that can act to address any of these problems, and that body is Congress. And we all know, as I bang on on this program all the time about how Congress doesn't do its job, you know Congress isn't going to do anything about it. So if you're the Fed, you're sitting there thinking, you know, well, this is basically the only play that we have in our playbook. We better run it. Uh, But Dan makes very good points about the consequences that will come from them having done this. But it it seems to me, in a sense, almost inevitable that they were going to make moves like this. And you know, maybe because it's the only thing that's available, it's it's going to be bad. But it may be, in a sense, if you go back to the actions of the Fed and Paul Volcker in the eighties um, of raising interest rates to induce a recession to get us out of the uh, inflation spiral that the country was in. Maybe it will work. Hopefully it will work, but it certainly uh, will have costs associated with it. Yeah. So, I I mean, technically, the Fed has other tools. They're just inflationary and bad, right? Like quantitative easing has contributed to the problem and not solved it. Um, so, yeah, I, I guess I'm in the camp of it, it will be a disruption. On the other hand, they tend to telegraph these things uh, on purpose um, and – I, there absolutely will be negative effects, but inflation right now is in in at the point where we absolutely need to be taking it far more seriously than we have. Um, you know, I don't even buy the argument that oh, two percent inflation is fine, and there's even good side. I don't. I, I think the good sides all wash out, um, and actually, I think some of the downsides of this, thankfully, will wash out, and that people will adjust. Uh, you know, banks will adjust interest rates on their loans and people will uh, adjust their investing habits and things like that. Um, Where inflation is particularly bad is people who don't have the assets like a house, which can appreciate, or they don't have access to credit uh, where they can get in on the 
you know, the game, unfortunately, of interest uh, offsetting inflation. Um, it's people who are stuck, uh, who are the non-banked, uh, the unbanked, uh, people who are stuck with cash holdings. Um, these tend to be poor, tend to be minorities. Um, and they are people, you know, when you talk about inflation, it just eats away the value of cash. So that's who's going to be most effective. Who has to do the most business in cash? Um, and we ought to care most about those people. Um, and so we absolutely ought to prioritize getting inflation under control. The other thing to think about uh, is it's not just people dealing in cash, but it's everyone who makes a living. Every uh, Inflation, I believe last month, uh, the numbers recently came out, inflation was at 8% for the year. Wages rose 5%. Wages are at like an all-time high, or at least they appear that way. I remember a few years ago, there was a fight for 15, trying to raise the, you know, advocate for legal, you I'm know, still getting stopped national... by people here in Michigan with petitions to get yeah. a $15 minimum wage on the ballot. And I chuckle every time I'm asked about it because I you know, drive past signs for Applebee's that is offering starting wages of $18. Yeah. We got past 15 right. the... without any legislation being necessary. At this point, I'll on because the best minimum wage is one that's below the equal equilibrium rate wage anyway, uh, and, mean, and it is ultimately meaningless. Um, but so we the wages have inflated, uh, but we still have this terrible labor market in which no one can find anyone to hire. And the reason is because wages in real dollars went down. And people know that, right? They go to the gas pump and they see it, especially the energy sector, as, as Dan mentioned. They know that, but they go to the grocery store. They know that. They see that, hey, I got a raise and yet I can afford less. You know, they people aren't stupid. They they can feel, they can see the difference. Um, just like banks aren't stupid and they're going to adjust their interest rates on their loans to compensate for inflationary pressures, uh, people aren't stupid and they notice the difference in their take-home pay and what it gets them. Um, so, uh, you know, again, to me, I think the focus should be on controlling inflation um, and, you know, not listening to the arguments of, oh, we'll just do a little bit of tweaking here and there. I mean, it's fine for a, a gradualist argument of we don't want to shock the economy in a in too, you know, drastic of a way all at once. OK, fine. I You know, I can buy into that. Um, but the idea that all oh, these, you know, 20 some years of inflationary policy, well, this was good because it's keeping wages down, which allows hiring and yada, yada, yada. There's all this kind of Keynesian sort of arguments. It hasn't been good. It hasn't been good for the people at the bottom. If you care about the poor, or even if you are the sort who cares about inequality, which I care a lot less about personally, you should absolutely care about inflation and our government getting it under control. So there's another way that the Fed, the Fed can't tackle this problem. But again, what are we looking at? We're looking at a situation in which we have too many dollars chasing too few goods. One way that the Fed is trying to do is constrict that supply of dollars a little bit after a long time of just shoveling more dollars into the system. Another way is to look and say, how do we ramp up the production of goods? That's something that the Fed can't do. That is something that our legislatures, that our Congress, that our president could do. Mm -hmm. There are ways you could ease trade restrictions is one way. You could <clears throat> take a look at those sectors like the energy sector, like education, like healthcare, because we forget. I mean, inflation is an aggregate, but we have seen year over year inflation in housing. Healthcare in education 
8% is respectable. Oh, yeah. In the last, if we look at the last two decades in those sectors. So this is like, these are like long-term problems in sectors that have very much been in need of reform. And maybe this is an opportunity to start looking at that and to try to look at what we can do on the supply side of this equation. One of the things that's particularly pernicious about inflation is that while it is certainly a a phenomenon that happens independent of how you think about it, it also, in a way, it it is a behavioral phenomenon as well because people change their behavior based on their perceptions of what is going on. Dylan's point is absolutely correct that if you're you're filling up at the gas station, you're feeling the pinch of all of that. And it does change people's behavior because you you may be – you're driving your car and you're just under, you know, a half a tank. Well, most people probably wait till they get under a quarter tank before they fill up. But, you know, in your mind, you're thinking, I have no idea what the price of gas is going to be in two or three days when I'm going to need to fill up. So I might as well do it now. So it in some ways drives people to make purchases in patterns that they otherwise would not engage in because they have so little certainty about what the price is going to be in the near future. That change in behavior um, certainly has market impacts, but it also just it's the kind of thing that becomes a you know a, a phenomenon of people's behavior all of its own. People change their behavior based on these circumstances. And you know I, I appreciate Dan's optimism for, hey, we might start looking at things differently. I, you know my, my obligatory point that Congress is weak and doesn't want to do its job. Um, but maybe maybe we'll close with this anecdote, which is a, a little bit of a downer, but um, kind of if we're not going to cry, we might as well laugh at it. A piece from the uh, Washington Post over the weekend that I saw highlighting that uh, one of the, I think we can all agree, worst possible ideas that um, the, this White House could have come up with to deal with the gas crisis, uh, the, the crisis in the price of gasoline, is they were going to send cards to people. Um, with money on it in order to help them purchase gasoline. Okay, Um, given the nature of the conversation we just had about inflation, about government spending and all of that, we probably all agree, not a great idea, Bob, right? Not great, Bob. However, they have run into a little problem. Uh, White House officials exploring sending Americans rebate cards to offset gas costs ran into another problem. The chips shortage... Uh, which meant you, uh, the U.S. couldn't physically produce enough of these cards to make the plan work, even if lawmakers tried to do it. So in a way, <laughs> the problems of the supply side in our economy that we do not have enough uh, microchips, enough chips to be able to do this bad idea is at least one of the things keeping us from doing this bad idea. So silver linings, I guess. Let's call it a wrap there. Thank you for listening to Act and Unwind. If you're listening to this podcast on our website, please take a look in the show notes for where you're going to find a link to where you can subscribe directly to Act and Unwind or just search Act and Unwind on your favorite podcast app. Also, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, five-star reviews only, so that more people can find the program. Thanks to Dylan. Thanks to Dan for the Acton Institute. This is Eric Cohn. We'll see you next week. 